Here's the thing though. to the Here's a Thingo podcast. We've missed you. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today and I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hey there. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So we're back. Yeah, we're finally, it's so weird just to be sitting here and finally be back and there's like microphones in front of our faces and such a weird feeling. I'm scared I've forgotten how to do all this. I I was going to say, I'm like, I'm getting stage fright. (laughs) I know, it's like, I need to make sure I actually press record because I haven't had to do that in a long time. It's been a hot minute for sure, but I am excited to be back. I actually have missed this and especially in the last couple of weeks, I've kind of been harassing you a little bit about when are we going to get started again? When are we going to get started again? But it's because I just like, I'm finally like inspired and I'm like full of ideas of things that I want to talk about. And I feel like it's good that we had that break because a lot's happened and that's kind of given us a long stretch of content that we want to get through. For sure. I think that was important having that break and waiting until you wanted to come back. Because I think it's just kind of, there's a sense of inertia with the podcast. We started it and once we started it, it's like, well, now we have to keep doing it each week because that's what we do. And because we, if I mean, if I was doing it by myself, it would have ended after like the first week. <laughs> but since we have to, you know, rely and depend on each other where at least one of us is like, okay, we actually have to do the podcast and it gets done. But then when we stopped it, the same kind of inertia happened where it's like, oh, we're not doing it. Well, I guess we can just keep not, not doing, doing it, it for another week. Yeah. Another week and then another week, which I was going to say, do you know how long it's been since we went on hiatus because you know time for me is just i i couldn't tell you i I could i could i could guess i don't actually know when we stopped what month are we in we're in september september surely it's not been six months i'm gonna i'm gonna guess like five months well there you go it's only been four months and a couple days no way okay look i honestly i was gonna say six months because that's how long it feels yeah but then i was like maybe i'm overestimating but it feels like it feels longer than four months it feels like it feels like ages yeah but longer than we perhaps intended i don't know i was probably expecting to take around like at least three months so i feel like four months makes sense to me yeah there you go i definitely needed it i definitely needed it but we are back and rejuvenated rejuvenated all right well give me a life update mitch what have you been up to in the last oh man what have i been up to you know it's it's really just the same same old it's just been nice to kind of uh i've been reading more probably not doing the podcast because i have to do things related to the topic so i mean we'll get into that soon still at uni just doing that whole charade Mm. what about you I was thinking about this before the episode started. I was like, what am I going to say? Yeah, I wish I had something a bit more exciting. Yeah, Just seeing friends, just doing all the good stuff. I'm just working a lot. That was Mm. a huge reason of why we went on the break in like the first place because I was just tired and a little bit overworked and like struggling to balance a full-time job with the podcast, which was starting to feel like another full-time job. And I'm glad I'm back. I know I'm going to get burnt out again really quickly, but like at least... That's worth it now. Like, it's worth Mm. it. In the beginning, it was like, I am suffering and for what? But now it's like, you know, even when I'm a bit burnt out and tired, like, it's fine because it's something that I'm really excited to do and I want to do. But yeah, basically just been working. What else have I done? I now have a flatmate, which is pretty exciting. I was living alone for over a year and one of my best friends has just 
moved in with me. It was very sudden and spontaneous and it's been really lovely. And I honestly just really enjoy not living alone anymore. It was getting, it was becoming a drag. I will say I was getting bored of my own company. So it's very wholesome. And what else? Oh, and I went to Bali for five days for a work trip, which was exciting. I feel like it sounds more exciting than it was, though. Like, it was exciting, but everyone's like, wow, you went to You're Bali? You're so lucky. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, like, maybe I should be a journalist. And I'm like, I mean, yes, like, absolutely. It, there are a lot of privileges to, like, working in the media, and this is one of them. But also, like... You're not going with your friends. Mm. Like you're going as a journalist with a company. Right. And there's an expectation that you transpose your experience into Yeah. Like your you, work you're gonna have to write content. something or like make a TikTok or whatever. Like I had to write an article. Um, like that is kind of the transaction, right? And I mean, like a lot of the time so okay, so these trips are called Famils. And a lot of the time it is cheaper for a company to take a journalist on a familiar than it is to like pay your company for an article. So it's not like a, wow, like you're so privileged. It's like, no, like we're kind of doing them the favor by going. Sure. It's cheaper to spend $3,000 sending somebody on a trip than it is many more thousands of dollars to pay for like an ad or like a spot, you know, an article. So actually like, you know, I feel like people think it's kind of like SponCon and it's it's not but yeah it was interesting I went to a Club Med resort which was like definitely not what I was expecting I've never been I should like preface this by saying that I've never really traveled I'm like one of those people who's kind of never really gone anywhere and this was like my first international flight as an adult I went like to Pakistan when I was six and that was kind of it so it was like it was like you know an experience yeah resorts are not like the rest of the place is what I discovered, which I know sounds obvious. They're resorts. Like, they're a really pristine, whitewashed section of this. It's like eth- their own little world. Yeah, yeah. Which, like, I feel like I should have known that, but I didn't. And I was surprised by it. And I'm not even, like, coming for it. I'm just saying that that's just what it is. Like, just as a fact, that was the experience. And I was like, oh, cool. Club Med is an interesting one. I wrote an article about it. Yeah. Um, just interviewing some of their staff about what it's like to work there. But it was, like, kind of fascinating because... I've never, I'd never heard of Club Med before I went and it does give cult vibes, but I say that not necessarily like in a problematic way, just like it's a very insular community of guests and like resort staff who all like know each other and the guests just like come back every year. They travel to all those Club Med locations. They know all the geos, which is what the ground staff are called. And, like, have a relationship with them. And it's just, it's bizarre to me. Yeah, like, they have their own vocabulary at these, like, club meds. And people go to these different countries for the club meds specifically. Which I think for a lot of listeners, they're probably like, yeah, you haven't heard of a club med. I mean, I I came across it because it was in a a New York Times crossword. And that's my (laughs) only experience. But people are like, they're actually quite a significant thing around the world. It was a massive culture shock for me. I mean, I could talk, I could honestly have a whole episode in Club Med. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) But that was just an interesting thing that I did because it was like my first time like going on this like big familiar event as like Mm. a journalist with like a company going overseas. And Bali was very beautiful, even though I only saw like a very pristine whitewashed corner of it. It was very beautiful. But yeah, like that's kind of all I've really been up to. Just been working a lot, and I, I wish I like could say that I'd read a lot, <laughs> but I haven't. I've read a couple of things, but like not more than I normally read. Let's be real. But yeah, okay. Look, so there's a few changes we are making in terms of how we do the podcast that we think will like streamline it a little bit because that was part of the reason we went away for a bit was to like rethink of how we want to continue it because our lives have significantly changed since we started it and it's not quite fitting into what we were doing. And we're still anymore. kind of figuring it out. Yeah, we're not 100% sure. This is on their production meeting right now. Yeah, I feel like we didn't prep nearly as much as we expected to before this episode, but I'm also okay with that. It feels organic. 
But what we are thinking is that since we do the podcast fortnightly and something I was struggling with before was kind of thinking of a deep dive topic every single time we did the podcast because like I don't always want to do a deep dive episode. So we're thinking of alternating with every episode. So one episode would be like a long kind of in-depth feature type one where we pick a topic and we kind of dive into it. And it's kind of the classic, here's the thing though experience. But then every second episode would be more of a news roundup. So it's like, we might round up like five stories and like talk about them. And I feel like that's a good way for us to do it. Cause I, you know, first and foremost, I'm a journalist and I love a news roundup, but it's not something we do every week. And at that point it would be happening monthly because it's every second episode, which is only once a month. And it's like a lot of things happen in a month. So I feel like it's a nice in between. We get to switch up our style fortnightly. It gives us a whole month to prep for a feature. It's nice. And I think it gives you more diversity in like the stuff you're listening to as well. It's more informative that way. So that's one change that we are going to bring to the podcast. I think we haven't like completely settled on it, but that sounds good to me. And the other one is a lot of you asked for recommendations. A lot of you wanted a recommendation episode, which like maybe we'll do in the future. But I was like, why don't we just add like five minutes to the beginning of every episode or even every second episode where we just like mention a couple of recommendations of things we've read or like listened to or watched in the last few weeks. I thought that could be nice. And then that way we can all talk about it. And I know a lot of you wanted recommendations. And I'm personally quite bad at remembering things I watch and I never end up recommending them even though I meant to. So this mm. might be a good way for me to actually start logging what you I'm reading. Like, yeah, yeah, I feel like that'd be good for me too, just in terms of keeping track of like the stuff I consume. So on that vein, have you watched, read or listened to anything cool in the last few months, Mitch? Yes, there are a couple of things that I've wanted to recommend. Uh, the two most recent books that I've read in the past couple of weeks have really been kind of occupying my mind. The first one is this great book, which I finished yesterday, called Necropolitics by Ashil Mbembe, uh, which is a really fascinating book about kind of, I mean, it's about violence and it's about the politics of death and the way death is used by like sovereign nations or colonialism. Jargony, but I would uh, recommend it. The other book, perhaps even more jargony, but very, very interesting. In fact, I think it will come up in a future episode, but I won't say anything more, but is this book by Lee Edelman called No Future, Queer Theory and the Death Drive, which is a really fascinating take on queer theory. Uh, Again, I'll get into it more in depth later, but it is almost kind of like a apprehensive recommendation because it does require uh, some knowledge on psychoanalysis, which I really didn't have going into it. So it's just like (laughs) reading it and then looking up like, what does Jacques Lacan say about, you know, the mother and whatever. A lot of Googling involved. A lot of Googling. But if you're into that, then I would recommend. And I'm currently reading Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, which is a book which I feel like you don't even need to read that book because it's just been so important in the gender studies zeitgeist that you've probably already have some familiarity with his ideas. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people would know of Judith Butler. Yeah, for sure. And this work in particular. Exactly. It's all about like gender and her claim is that gender isn't something you are, but it's something that you do. Gender is performative. Uh, but I thought I should actually read it uh, instead of just continually yeah, referencing exactly, something. Exactly what you said. I've like, we read about that like a lot in my like journalism degree yep. about performative gender, which was very interesting. In terms of movies, I'll just give you, give you one, which I think we both share, which is Nope, 
Jordan Peele's uh, fantastic. Yeah, this is also my recommendation. New film, which I don't know, like, what was everyone thinking about that one? Is it okay, less look, popular than his others or? Yes, actually. So, yeah. I was talking about this on Insta Story, so a few of you will know what I'm talking about. I really loved it and I was going to recommend it as well, but I feel like a lot of people kind of didn't really get it. I saw, like, complaints on both social media and, like, just talking to people that a lot of the subtext that people didn't find it as clear, like didn't find like the point or the meaning or like what was being said as clear as like movies like Get Out, which surprised me. Like I didn't think, I mean, I, I can I can get it in a way. Like some of it was more vague than like Get it's Out. It's more is, abstract. Than yeah, Get Out is too. a lot more on the nose in comparison. Yeah. I really liked it though, but I'm not going to like get into it now because I actually want to do an episode on Nope. Yeah, let's do it. Like maybe in the next few weeks. So I'm like, let's not get into it now. Okay. You guys have... just know we like it and we recommend it. Yes. In fact, you should watch it before... We talk about it. Yeah. uh, Because we'll get into spoilers, uh, but I really enjoyed that. And then lastly, in terms of other podcasts, uh, which I've been listening to while not doing this podcast, is this one called Decoder Ring, which is by the Slate Magazine Podcast Network. It's kind of like You're Wrong About where they go in, do a deep dive oh, into some- I love some, like debunking type Like cult, pop cultural mm. uh, event or thing. But instead of You're Wrong About, which is very conversational, it's kind of like scripted, very mm. highly structured, very, very, very well produced. I just love it. So I've just been going through the back catalog of all that. So yeah, those are a few recommendations, but more will come later. Yeah, we'll do them- on the reg. So my recommendations, look, in terms of book, I'm a serial starter and not finisher when yes, it comes to books. I'm, me too. I'm actually technically reading like seven books right now, like at this moment, and I'm not exaggerating, but I'm just going to mention a couple. So I got Desi Girl by Sarah Malik. Some of you guys might know her. She's a Walkley award-winning journalist in Australia. She published her first book. It's a memoir called Desi Girl that I've started reading. And it's really good so far. Like I'm only a few chapters in, but I really relate. And I feel like a lot of the brown girls who listen to this podcast will relate. Because something I do like about it is it's not so... I don't know. I feel like a lot of stories written from like the diaspora perspective can like swing too hard in like one specific direction. So either they're kind of too scornful of like the ethnic parent and like the rules that they had to grow up with to the point where it feels like internalized racism being externalized. And then it can also swing the other way where it's like, I don't actually relate to you at all. (laughs) This is just not relatable. But I feel like it's a great medium. It's like not overly personal in a way which is which i've just i don't know i've just enjoyed it i've enjoyed it i feel like it's relatable it's by an australian writer as well so i recommend it i've also started reading believing women by asma balas which mitch and i are reading together yes and it's really really good so far it's really interesting it's fantastic yeah it's essentially a quote-unquote feminist interpretation of the quran but like i wouldn't call it feminist necessarily because the author herself like rejects that as a name because feminism is a Western construct because she argues that actually like liberation for women can exist outside of like feminism, which is a quite recent construct. And then she would argue that the Quran, for example, like does liberate women in a lot of ways. And she's not going to call it feminism because that actually prescribes it Western notions that it like transcends. It's really, really, really interesting. Um, We're only a few chapters in. It's quite like, it's quite jargony. It's a bit academic. But still very approachable. Like, yeah. I would recommend that. Yeah, she wrote it for, interested. like, anyone. Like, the whole point is it's not meant to be for only Muslim women, but she, like, she wrote it because more Muslim women need to read literature like that. Anyway, I'm really enjoying it. For the Muslim women who listen to this podcast, if you, like, 
kind of want to back yourself and fight for people that like gaslight you for being Muslim because they tell you it's irreconcilable with your progressive beliefs, I highly recommend you read it. And the last thing I was going to mention for books is that I'm also currently reading I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy, which is her memoir. I also realize now that I've mentioned two memoirs, I don't read memoirs. This is like not, I normally really can't stand them to be honest, but I am actually for the first time in my life reading and enjoying memoirs. And I'm glad my mom died. I'm mostly just reading it for like, the tea. <laughs> mm. Like, I mean, anyone who's grown up on like Nickelodeon and iCarly, like you'd want to know what's going on. And I'm glad my mom died is out on September 15th. We were recording today on Friday, September 8th. I got like a review copy from the publisher and it's really interesting. And also like so dark. <laughs> like I've taken a break right now. I'm more than halfway through, but I'm like, you know what? Like this is actually a little bit triggering and I'm going to take a step back, but it is really cleverly written. So I actually do recommend it so far. It's based on her one-woman show. Yes. Right? Yes, it is. Does the book read kind of performatively like that or is it- No, no? it reads very conversationally written. Like if you listen to the audiobook, which I listen to snippets of, like it just sounds like she's talking to you about something that happened. It's Mm. very conversational. It's like written in first person. It's like her inner monologue essentially. But it does like skip over a lot of things that I expected it to delve into. So I was kind of surprised by some of the things it leaves omitted. But I do believe that's probably just for legal Mm. reasons, like defamatory reasons. I am am keen to read that as an iCarly- Kitty. I don't know what to call it. <laughs> iCarly? Like somebody, someone who watched iCarly. Somebody yeah. who watched iCarly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, movies. Yes, also Nope. I'm going to speed through this. Uh, I do recommend Nope. We'll talk about that more later. I also watched Fire of Love with Mitch in the cinemas mm. recently, which is a documentary made from like archival footage about two volcanologists who were also in love but like also loved volcanoes and it's kind of about their life and their contributions to science and their relationship. And it's really beautiful and like quite unique. Like I've never seen anything like this. I've never watched anything made like this before. Personally, I really loved it. It was so warm and you'd expect it to be sad because this is like not a spoiler alert. They tell you in the first five minutes, but these volcanologists like die together in a volcano explosion. (laughs) And then it's looking back at their life and you expect it to be kind of heartbreaking, but it's, it's not, it's actually quite, a beautiful and hopeful documentary. So I really enjoyed that and I recommend it. And I watched Pariah for the first time with Mitch recently as well, which is not a new movie. I had just never seen it before. It is, I guess, a queer coming of age story about a black lesbian in America. And it is so authentic. Mm. Like the feeling that I got when I watched it was it just feels so real in a way that movies generally can't because they're movies. Like Every they are character, fictitious. yeah, it's like they were pulled out of real life. Even the ones which you don't really- Like even background characters. Yeah. And the ones you don't really sympathize with or the ones who are almost the antagonists of the story are like, they're not really antagonists because- you can you totally exactly understand who they from. are and like why they do the things that they do and i think probably my favorite thing about it is that it's realistic in a way first of all that's rarely told i think because the whole point of a lot of narratives is to tell this exciting and dramatized story which has its specific tropes and i don't think this movie really does that and the other thing i loved about it is its ending which is like just so beautiful and like so hopeful and I think it's, again, a hope that, like, we need to see more of in, like, a lot of stories about queerness, which, as we know, can often be quite tragic. And it's one of those things that balances tragedy and hope so well. So I really love it. I really loved it. I really want people to watch it. And then I do have a podcast recommendation. I have started listening to You Are Good, which was formerly known as Why Are Dads. So it's co-hosted by the, one of the co-hosts of You're Wrong About, which is, like, my favorite podcast. Getting a lot of uh, talk this episode, You're Wrong About. 
Yeah, I just yeah. <laughs> look. I think it's because I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but I do listen to your own mouse. It just comes up a lot. But the host, the two hosts of that podcast, Michael and Sarah, and Sarah also co hosts Why Are Dads, which is now You Are Good, and it's a film podcast. And I like, honestly, I've listened to some film podcasts with Mitch. And I know you love them, but I can sometimes struggle to like really get into them because it's a little bit too like film bro for me sometimes. It's a little bit too involved in like the film industry and like the cinematography. It's a bit more technical, I think, than what I'm personally looking for in a film podcast. And I really like You Are Good because it's more about just narratives and like characters. And that's the kind of stuff that I like to talk about. I feel like it reminds me a lot of like the media that I was talking about when I was in uni. Mm. So I listened to the episode on Arrival, which is the first episode that I ever listened to last week. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I feel like it really related to a lot of the stuff that I thought when I watched Nope. And then I was like, wow, like, this is so cool. <laughs> like, I just love when things are clicking and they all just kind of fall together in your head and you're like, wow, everything makes sense. We're going to elaborate on that in another episode about Nope, but I'm going to recommend You Are Good. I've also listened to their Titanic episode, which I really, really loved as well. All right, let's get into what this episode is actually going to be about. There are two kind of segments today. It's not going to be our structure that we're going to move into in the next few weeks because it's our first week back and we just want to talk about stuff. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you know how we said we're either going to do deep dives or news roundups? Today's neither. So I feel like the first episode back is exempt from all rules. We're just getting back into the groove, you know, figuring it out. It's also just a lot's going on and we want to talk about it. I mean, for one thing. Okay, so the two segments. The first is going to be about the Queen, who actually died this morning. <laughs> We're recording on Friday, the 8th of September. The 9th. The 9th of September. Yeah. Friday, the 9th of September. And yeah, that was not in our original episode plan. So this was going to be a long featurey episode. But then we were like, we can't not talk about the Queen. So this is a mishmash episode. In the second segment of this episode, we are going to talk about Harry Styles. It's a big day for British people today. This episode is stemming from the Don't Worry Darling drama, which I'm sure all of you, if you aren't across it, have at least heard of it by now because it's literally everywhere. But like my interest and what we're going to explore today is like the public's perception and relationship with Harry Styles in particular, considering his godlike status and how I'm like convinced that his cancellation is imminent. What goes up must come down. I do think Harry Styles is going to come down sooner or later. And I think there's actually a lot of interesting things around that that we can talk about. So that's kind of our episode introduction. Let's get into talking about the Queen. Queen Elizabeth II died this morning at 96 years old, a ripe old age, I think. She lived a very long life, tragically. Um, And there's been a lot of discourse around not necessarily her death, but people's reactions to Mm, her death. Yes. Which I think was, you know, expected. I feel like I should make it very clear that I really do not give a fuck about the Queen. And in fact, I hope she, like, suffered. (laughs) Like, I just think, you know, the Queen is a symbol of imperialism and, like, literally, like, she is a colonizer, like, in the most literal sense. Not in the way that we call, like, a lot of white people colonizers. Like, she, by definition, like, participated in colonialism. So... Obviously me and a lot of other people whose, you know, ancestors, even like grandparents or parents were subjugated by British rule and imperialism, you know, don't give a fuck about the queen and are either neutral to her dying or like happy about it. But naturally the British bootlickers and honestly just like a lot of bootlickers everywhere have been weirdly protective of the queen 
and like genuinely devastated by her death and then like really offended by people who aren't devastated by her death. And I just think this is such an interesting microcosm of tone policing and white tears. <laughs> like it's just, we've talked about this so many times and it just comes up again and again. And the queen's death is like this real moment of it. I mean, even just like on my Instagram, obviously I've been sharing posts about the queen's death and what that means to anyone that was tortured under her rule or was emancipated from torture under her rule. And I got a response from someone that I thought was very funny. All I did was share a headline that said the queen has died. And I, and like my story caption was lol bye. Mm. <laughs> and I got a response from somebody being like, you know, I agree with you 95% of the time, but like you can be more diplomatic. Your words don't have to be so ugly, like unfollowed by or whatever. And I just, like found that so funny because I mean, lullaby is particularly tame as what? well, which is I could have said so much. I said lullaby, and it was like your words are so ugly, and I find that really interesting as well because it's preceded with like I normally agree with you, but and what that really is saying is I am not going to engage with the message of what you're saying. I am only going to complain about the way that you delivered it. Which anyway, the way I delivered it didn't even like wasn't even problematic. But I think a lot of people right now are doing this, which is, I mean, the definition of tone policing, right? Like tone policing, it's getting more upset about the way somebody delivers a message than of what the message actually is and like not focusing on that message and getting caught up in their tone or their voice or whatever. Like we all know what that is. And this was a great example. And we're seeing it a lot with literally anybody that like defends themselves or says, hey, I am personally victimized by British imperialism. My country has lost all its wealth, which the queen lives in comfortably. Like there is now slavery and people died in the thousands, if not millions. And it was all very sad. So forgive me for not giving a fuck. And everybody is like, wow. You are so disrespectful. So callous. So callous. Like, you couldn't wait one day to voice those opinions. Now is not the time to be having conversations about the negative impacts of colonialism. Like, can't you just let her rest for a day? And it's so, so frustrating for so many reasons. I mean, the first one is that when is there ever a good time to talk about colonialism? <laughs> like, this idea of, like, now is not the time. Like, wait. Like, you guys always say that. People are always telling you now is not an appropriate time to talk about awful thing that happens to you. And it's like, yeah, there never is because it's never going to be a comfortable conversation for you or for anybody that has benefited from colonial rule. Like it's never going to be comfortable. So like shutting it down because the queen died is like just an excuse. It's a deflection. And then on top of that, (laughs) I've seen a lot of people be like, you know, you can't be mad at Queen Elizabeth. Like she's not the one who did it. She's just a symbol of imperialism. She's not like a colonizer herself, but she is. She is. I don't think people know history. Queen Elizabeth has been the queen since 1952, okay? 1952. She came to Australia for the first time in 1954 and signed the Aborigines Welfare Ordinance. I can literally link the fucking contract in our sources, which allowed for the ethnic cleansing of Aboriginal people in the Australian Capital Territory. Like in that paper that she signs, it gives ministers powers to move Aboriginal people onto reserves if they feel like they shouldn't be on whatever land that they are on. Like this is how they displaced Aboriginal people and then placed white people on their land. That document also gives police powers well actually I think the word they use is access. So it gives police access to Aboriginal people at all times. So anytime a police officer shows up to an Aboriginal person's residence or like talks to them, like there's no warrants. There's no like, oh, I need a reason to like strip search you. 
there's none of that. She like actively participated in the oppression of Aboriginal people and like signed off documents that allowed the negative treatment of them. So let's not pretend that she is just like this benevolent face that like happens to have a family who's problematic. Like she is problematic and then there's so many other like people were literally fighting for independence during queen elizabeth's rule like trinidad you know got independence in 1962 i think yes trinidad and tobago won independence from the british empire in 1962 the queen was 36 and had been the queen for a decade like they were fighting for independence from the british during her rule and she was the monarch she was the reigning monarch like this woman was involved <laughs> in actively oppressing people and right. nobody wants to talk about it's it. It's like, even if she just was, as they say, the, the figurehead or, you know, it's her ancestors, it's the previous kings and queens who did this, that would still be issue enough that she can maintain status of queen on this colonial monarchy. Yeah. yeah. So even if they're correct, that would be like reason to just not really give a shit about her yeah, like, but then both- also she was a colonizer in the most literal terms she didn't just embody it she was it literally and like yeah again but like what you said with people being like oh but she didn't actually a lot of people like to be like you know she didn't have any real powers like there were governments involved she's just the figurehead she's a symbol i'm like okay then why does she have so much wealth like interrogate your bias towards the queen because if she doesn't actually have any standing you know if, if you think she doesn't have any power over the public and all she is is a symbol, then why is she so rich? Why does she live in a castle? Why does she have all these privileges if she doesn't do anything? And why do the... And why are you okay with that? You British people pay for it as well. Yeah. It's kind of amusing thing because people always say it's like a tourism argument, but it's actually not true. They're, they do not bring in more money via tourism than they actually expend themselves. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, it's all just a big kind of farce and charade. Yeah, so it strange. is. And I was just so surprised by how much people seemed to care. I was not expecting so many people to be tone policing. I w- I thought that would be the minority, but it seems the, I the majority. I, I mean, yeah, cl- I'm clearly out of the loop. <laughs> but I I know my nana, who's you know was born in England, cares a great deal about the queen the royals. and the royals and whatnot. And I know there is that group of people. But they 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 roam they 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 walk among us. They it's so strange to me. Yeah, I think look, everywhere. I do think it's it is like generational in a lot of ways. Though I do think people our age c- care a lot less. I think a lot of the people that are tone policing others about the royal family are like older than thirty typically, which I know is not old, but I just mean older than us. There is a real generational divide on like Gen Z and how they view the royals. I think they're a lot more radical. But then also like I, God, I saw some like young, you know, like Gen Z-ish age person being like, oh my God, it feels like my grandmother died. I'm like, babe, the queen is not your grandmother. What are you talking about? Like, oh my God. I also have to wonder like how people conceive of the royal family. Because it's like, how do you think she became queen? Like, what do you know of her status like, have people who defend her, like, questioned why she is in the position that she is? Cause it's just, every- like, a cute thing the, the British do. Yeah. It's just, like, a cool but little like, tradition. Do you know what the, like, do you know what the divine right to rule is? <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, the divine right to rule is why the queen is the queen. So, like, her, like, long line of, like, inbred British ancestors. You know, if you ask, when did the first one happen? Like, when did royalty become a thing? They genuinely believe, this royal succession believe, that they were given the divine right to rule by God. Like, God chose them to be rulers 
and that they exist on a different plane to everybody else. Like, they're literally God's chosen. This is, like, the opposite of democracy, right? And I just think, like, look at 96-year-old Queen Elizabeth. Just, like, look at her and, like, think about her saying that she deserves this because God chose her. Like, does that not change your perspective of her even a little bit? Like, it shocks me that people are okay with the divine right to rule because when you spell it out, it sounds fucking ridiculous. Because mm. it is. And she necessarily has to believe that because if she didn't, then she would acknowledge the absurdity of her position yeah, exactly. and step down from the throne. You can't have it both ways. You either have to believe you have the God-ordained right to be a ruler or you have to refuse participation. At least that's the only way I could conceive of it. Yeah, because if you don't believe that and you're queen anyway, then you're just a bad person. Yeah. <laughs> so I just think, yeah, like people really need to interrogate why they feel any defensiveness for the queen and why they want to protect her. And I think people also really need to interrogate why they think it's disrespectful for, I mean, predominantly people of colour and, like, obviously Irish people and stuff to be, like, upset. Because I've, I've seen a lot of people, like, asking for compassion and kindness for the queen. For the fucking queen. Like, imagine asking us to, like, hold some compassion for the queen who, like, died at 96 in incredible wealth and comfort while the rest of us are like working class citizens whose families have been displaced from their homeland and whose countries are still recovering and in poverty from like British imperialism. And it's like, no, but you need to show kindness and compassion. Never mind like the deep set trauma. I mean, even just things like South Asian people, like their bodies are more likely to hold on to fat and body weight because of the famine. Like it literally changed our biology in an epigenetics event because of the way that we have been treated by the British. Like the British have literally fucked up our bodies permanently, but we have to Mm. like be sad that the queen died. Like, are you kidding me right now? Yeah, it's just, it's really frustrating. It is a very obvious expression of tone policing, but I find that it's like a lot deeper than that too. I saw somebody on Twitter refer to it as the benevolent master in terms of like politics which I find really interesting. I mean, that comes from like, you know, American, I guess, academics talking about slavery, but like the benevolent master is this idea that like they were kind slave masters and they were like benevolent and they were like nice to the slaves and the slaves were like happy to work for them, which is like never the case. Like there's no such thing as a benevolent master because by being your master, like that is enacting a form of violence. And the queen is the same thing. Like everyone likes to treat her like this like sweet old lady. And it's like literally by being in that position, there had to have been bloodshed and violence. And she's not exempt from that. And I find it very funny that we can like, for example, a lot of, because I see it's, it's mostly in my DMs, like white women defending the queen, just because my audience is mostly women. But I always think like, you understand when we talk shit about men, like when we talk shit about men and we say we hate all men, which we do quite often say that very casually, like there isn't anger from white women because they get it. Because like, yeah, obviously not every man hurt them personally, but they understand the blanket statement. But then when you make blanket statements like that about white people or like the queen or the royals, which it's not a blanket statement, they are colonizers. But when you make that, suddenly it's like, no, like look at the individual. And it's a very interesting expression of like whiteness, I think, and like Britishness. Yeah, it's shocking, especially because people forget that we were her subjects too. (laughs) Like a lot of British subjects being like, you're being so disrespectful to her British subjects that love her. And I'm like, I was like, my family was once her subjects as like people who are Pakistani, whose whose parents are Indian, like, and like had to experience partition. Like this is, we were all once her subjects. There's very few countries that haven't been invaded by the British. Yeah, I, I don't get it. Either they do nothing and they shouldn't exist or they're colonizers and they shouldn't exist. Have we also forgotten that she literally like defended and covered up and like protected her pedophile son? Like, 
Hello. Even if we weren't talking about colonizing, she's also like a rape apologist and like a sexual assault apologist and like allowed human trafficking to happen. So there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack with what an absolute hag this woman is. And everyone is defending her because, I don't know, she's a harmless, cute old lady, allegedly. Yeah. And the one thing I kind of found interesting about this whole, I mean, in the hours after her death, which is where we're recording this, the weird divide that we've been seeing between it's never okay to talk about someone who has died like this uh, and then the other side who are like, you know, the position we are, which is like, she was completely fucked. Like, why she was evil. Why, why, do, we why do we need a tone police? And you're right that it is partly a generational thing. But I also see people, you know, our peers, people like us, people our age who are saying this is never okay. It's all about civility politics. And yeah, it's always sad politics. when someone dies. And I see this kind of uh, strange parallel with like the discourses of violence and nonviolence or like nonviolence and pacifism and these kind of these politics and these political positions. And I see the contradictions as well that arise. There's a big thing, which is like, it's always wrong to take pleasure in other people's deaths. And I mean, I'm not really that invested in the, in the queen debacle. I wish I knew more about what she did so I could have a stronger position. But saying that I saw this interesting tweet, which was doing the rounds, which went viral. Uju Anya, a professor tweeted, I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. Go off. And then Jeff Bezos, amusingly, I I didn't realize that he was going to come into the conversation today. (laughs) But Jeff Bezos uh, retweeted that or quote tweeted and said, this is someone supposedly working to make the world better. I don't think so. Wow. Which Imagine <laughs> Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos coming for currently someone. being on the moral high horse. You're saying, <laughs> you know, you can have your issues, but like this isn't the way to go about it, which is always the response. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is exactly the what time policing the is. The reasonable response. It's like you can have your opinions on the Queen, but, but it's, don't. it's worth mentioning here that the person who tweeted that tweet is black <laughs> as yes, well. Yes, that's also very important. And I find it so interesting that a figure like Bezos is condemning such a tweet and taking such a moral high ground when Amazon is literally powered by human misery. People see the anti-queen rhetoric as being like uh, kind of violent or it's like about taking pleasure in death. It's like a politics of death, you know, because for some reason they see death as being like outside politics. Like we shouldn't talk about death or we shouldn't take pleasure in other people's mm. death. We have because, to take a pause on our politics. Yeah, because that's outside politics. Um, whereas Bezos, apparently like a nonviolent uh, king, <laughs> um, Bezos is, of course, like very pro-violence, maybe not in what he says. But I imagine that if you got caught like stealing goods from an Amazon factory, Bezos would be very happy to call the police on the thieves, which of course is violent. You know, like instead of doing the violence yourself, you're just deferring the violence mm-hmm. to men and women with guns by their side who have a legal right to use them. All I'm trying to say is that at the moment, politics and death are one and the same or they can't really be separated. And the Queen's death is being discussed like it's outside of politics. And that's all I'm trying to say. It's like 
I'm not saying, I'm not taking a side on violence or nonviolence. All I'm acknowledging is that at the present moment, nonviolence uh, isn't really possible because those that are nonviolence depend on like the police to defend their position. And the police is just deferred violence. You're just loaning out your violence to someone else, you know? Yeah. I find what you said about like death being apolitical or to these people really interesting because you're right. Like death is political and the queen's death is so political. Like the implications of her death and the way that that is going to impact certain countries like ours because we're still, you know, under the Queen's rule is political. And the way people respond to her death is political because she is political. Her rule was political. Imperialism is political. And the suffering we feel under it is political. So it's really interesting how people can, like, pretend that her death is outside of it or that any death is outside of politics because all death, in a way, is going to be political because of, like, first, the impacts it has and, secondly, like, how it came about to be as well and then yeah like I also find it really interesting when you bring up deferred violence because that is exactly what is happening whenever people be like I'm not violent I would just call the cops it's like no I wouldn't beat you up I would just get somebody else to like it's not yeah you're so right but with Jeff Bezos I also liked what you said about thievery because like in Uja Anya's tweet like she you know calls the queen a thief which she is she is still yet to return India's jewels which she stole and now she's dead but it's like imagine getting mad at a professor for calling the queen a thief when like obviously you as a business owner would hate theft like you have a problem with theft but you only have a problem with theft when it's people steal like poor people stealing from you not when it's the queen stealing from like other countries because again it's like it's just on positionality right it's just like on your position like in this debate because you're unaffected by that theft it's not wrong and also because you are partaking in doing that theft to others it's not wrong like how much wage theft do you think jeff bezos has participated in as well a lot so, and the working conditions that Amazon uh, yeah, workers have to work in. Yeah, which are also a form of violence. It's violence, yeah. But anyways. Yeah, I feel like what we're taking away from this conversation is that people will never stop tone policing. <laughs> yeah. And that people have weird parasocial relationships with the queen and that people are inherently pretty racist, I guess, is where this comes from. Nobody wants to fucking learn what the queen actually did. But anyway, let's move on to like the main topic of today's episode. Oh, Harry Styles. Harry Styles. There has been a lot of conversation about Harry Styles in the last, I'm going to say month, actually, because I feel like the stuff I want to talk about today and the imminent cancellation of Harry Styles that I can feel in my bones started in August. But so Mitch has kind of come in uh, without any prior knowledge of this topic because I thought it'd be more fun if I like told the story of the evolution of conversation around Harry Styles as somebody who was once an avid directioner. I'm not going back that far, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when Harry Styles was, was born. Yeah, right. A long time ago. We're not going back that far. We are actually going back really to 2019 because that is when I think the conversation around Harry Styles shifted very dramatically. But let's, let's just do Okay, I said I wasn't going to go back to One Direction. I actually am. I okay, lied. But I'm right. going to do it in like 30 seconds. I just wanted to be like, okay, Harry Styles gets famous through One Direction. Mm. Uh, at the time because I was a directioner, I can tell you that his reputation was like weirdly as like the fuck boy, which I don't know where it came from because I don't think he actually had that many like partners or anything, but he was just like the charming fuck boy, I guess that was his role. And then he really grew out of it when One Direction disbanded and he became a solo artist. And then he kind of, that's when his fame really like skyrocketed. He is, I think, you know, inarguably the most famous and successful One Direction member. And in 2020, I feel like, what really brought him a lot of both good and bad fame 
was his Vogue cover. So in 2020, Harry Styles made history as the first ever male cover of Vogue and he wore a dress in the shoot and it like, you know, went off his tits. It was so like viral and like on one hand he was really praised for like being brave and breaking boundaries and like, you know, like embracing kind of really broad conceptions of what it means to like express gender and stuff. Like, you know, it was seen as like quite groundbreaking. On the other hand, obviously they were like homophobic or like queerphobic haters that were like, why is he in a dress? I don't like him anymore, but like whatever, because that's like actually a huge part of Harry's brand now. Like I think that kind of kicked off then, like he was always pretty queer in his aesthetics and then it really kicked off for the Vogue cover when he was in the dress. The reason I'm bringing the dress up and why I actually think this story, this today's story about Harry and his cancellation starts there was because of the fame he got from that dress. Harry is by no means the first person, the first man, sorry, to like wear a dress anywhere. But in 2019, so, so the Vogue cover was December 2020. A year and a half earlier in February 2019, Billy Porter wore a gown instead of a tux to the Oscars. You probably would have seen like images of him. It was a really big pop culture moment at the time and it was considered incredibly brave and groundbreaking and I don't think there were any high profile celebrities ever doing that before and it was a really big deal. Anyway, so that so Billy Porter wears a dress. It's a big deal. A year later, Harry Styles wears a dress. It's more of a big deal than when Billy Porter wore a dress. And he's definitely praised for it more than Billy Porter did. And he definitely doesn't face almost any of the negative consequences that Billy Porter faced for wearing a dress. So in October 2021, Billy Porter actually addresses this in a profile with the Times. And I think his quotes are really interesting. And I think this is actually where the conversation starts about Harry Styles maybe not being the God everyone has believed him to be for a very long time. Because really, even now, up until like the last two weeks, Harry Styles was unproblematic fave. Like didn't ever really say anything controversial, like just kind of is cool, is queer, is here for a good time. So Billy Porter said to the Times, quote, I created the conversation and yet Vogue still put Harry Styles, a straight white man in a dress on their cover for the first time. I'm not dragging Harry Styles, but he is the one you're going to try and use to represent this new conversation He doesn't care. He's just doing it because it's a thing to do. This is politics for me. This is my life. I had to fight my entire life to get to the place where I could wear a dress to the Oscars and not be gunned now. And all he has to do is be white and be straight. End quote. Interesting. So Billy Porter is a black gay man who has really been pushing the boundaries in fashion. He often refers to a lot of his fashion style as like non-binary fashion because he kind of doesn't really give a fuck about gender roles and like wears what he wants to wear. And a lot of it is like considered quite effeminate, like dresses and heels. And I think that was really interesting. And I remember when that happened at the time, I was like, you are so right. Because it's true. Like Harry Styles is not openly quote unquote out. He doesn't. Which I also didn't know. Yeah. Okay. So he has never uh, said that he's queer. So he's been asked before about his sexuality and his gender expression. He's generally like replied with labels are so outdated. Like, why do you keep asking me about a label? I don't need to tell you this because this is an outdated conversation, which is true. Like Mm -hmm. he's not wrong. It is outdated. And, you know, we talk constantly about how ideally you know, in in this current world, we would live in a time where you don't need to label your sexuality or gender and it's just a part of who you are. And you know what? Gender and sexuality is so unique anyway. There are a million ways to express it. Why must he have to conform to a label? He's right. But 
yeah, he's also just never said he's queer. <laughs> he's always avoided the conversation, which is for a lot of people frustrating. I think it's a pretty nuanced one to navigate for us because on the one hand, like I said, I don't think anybody owes anybody an explanation on their gender or sexuality. But it is also interesting that like openly gay people, especially Billy Porter, an openly gay black man, are out here like breaking boundaries as men, as queer men. And Harry Styles, as somebody who is like cis and potentially straight, when he does the same thing and why it is rewarded is like a conversation that needs to be had. So there's a lot of criticism among parts of the gay community where people are like, hmm, is Harry like profiting off queer aesthetics while not actually facing the backlash of like being a queer person? Um, not, you know, having to face, like, the distinct homophobia that can come from being gay. Mm, and, you can be in this liminal space between yeah. straight and uh, and queer without having to identify with either. Or is able to take the queer aesthetics while also holding on to the stability that straightness comes with. Yeah. And, like, you know, I mean, it is, I think, a tough one. Yeah. And But I, I really do agree with uh, Billy Porter because, again, he's not even dragging Harry Styles. Like, he's just talking about the Vogue cover mm. and why that really hurt him because he – it was, like – it was a moment when he wore that dress, okay? It was, like, a moment. And then they created their own moment, which is the same moment, but with Harry Styles. And it's, like, why didn't you just do this with Billy Porter? Like, why didn't you just have this moment – with him, why was he not your first male Vogue cover in a dress? Like, why is it Harry Styles? And we know why it's Harry Styles. It's because we reward white mediocrity. Yeah. Like, we know this. It's because not him in a dress is more tolerable. Exactly. To the, the, the masses. It's more palatable. Like, Harry's features are more, like, I guess, feminine. Like, when he wears a dress, it's not, like, as shocking as, like, Billy Porter wearing a dress. Because people perceive Billy Porter as more masculine for a lot of reasons. And one of them being that he's black. Like, you know what I mean? We've talked in previous episodes about blackness and masculinity and the way that black men are always seen as like hyper masculine and stronger and scarier and more aggressive. And Harry, this like white, this skinny white boy is already like effeminate just by existing, just in comparison to Billy Porter. So there are like race politics at play. And I remember when that happened, I was on Billy Porter's side, if there is a side. I mean, he like he's not coming for Harry, so it's not a feud. He's just like, this is fucked. Like, I'm criticizing the system and the fact that, like, of course they chose Harry over me, even though Harry's not even out and I'm like an out proud gay man who was actively trying to dismantle certain stereotypes. And of course they went with Harry, who, by the way, is like surprisingly apolitical. So in doing my research for this episode, I was just like looking at so many quotes and stuff of his. And he very rarely takes a stance on anything. And that's probably why he's so successful in a lot of ways. He's done it in a way that we haven't noticed. I don't, like, everyone believes he believes certain things, but he doesn't really take strong political stances on anything, including sexuality. Like, we know he's pro-gay rights because he, like, has his rainbow flag and he's supportive of gay relationships and he's going to play a gay cop in a movie called My Policeman, which is all about the gay experience. And, you know, he's, like, we know he's an ally. And then we also know that because he technically hasn't called himself straight either, that he could be queer himself. So we know that, but we actually don't know any of his other stances on anything. And a lot of his quotes are really vague and I think purposefully so because it's kind of a good way to like maintain a wide audienceship. It kind of reminds me of Taylor Swift because for a long time, Taylor Swift was apolitical, quote unquote, and like did not take a stand on a lot of issues. And then like the Republicans started to use her as like the face of, you know, their little Aryan princess. And then eventually she like openly supported queerness and like stood up to like Republicans and she lost a lot of followers because of it. But then her like actual fans, you know, really loved her for it. And I don't think Harry Styles is the same because he is 
pro a lot of progressive things. He's not apolitical, but he is like weirdly silent in a lot of political things. And I just struggled to find like strong quotes about anything from him. And even like with this, you know, Billy Porter situation, like the key point of Billy Porter's quote is that he says, this is politics for me. This is my life. I had to fight my entire life to get to a place where I could wear a dress to the Oscars and not be gunned. Right? And it's like, yeah, this is not politics for Harry Styles. This is politics for Billy Porter as a black gay man in America. This is not politics for Harry Styles as like a very palatable white straight man that literally everybody is in love with. And then that kind of brings me forward a little bit more on like politics is then in August 2022, so just a month ago, Harry Styles is going to be in two movies right now. So... Don't Worry Darling premiered at the Venice Film Festival and he's also going to be in My Policeman which is based on a novel and it's a movie where he plays a closeted gay cop that forms a relationship with a man in secret while also like marrying a woman that's in love with him and it's about like it's set in the 1950s and it's about like the criminalization of gayness and the impact that that had. Interesting. It's interesting. It's also interesting about why Harry is in that role in particular. Very confusing to me because the director is gay and like the other two leads are gay or they're queer. And Harry is somebody who refuses to openly identify as queer but is in this role. And again, like if he is queer, then sure, that makes sense. But we don't know really anything about his sexuality. Um, But yeah, so there's because of like him being in that role and then his refusal to kind of confirm or deny queerness it's led to a lot of accusations of queer baiting which like i have mixed feelings about yeah so to kind of explain that so some people have accused him of profiting off queer aesthetics without actually claiming the queer community which i think is a really apt way to put what this is like harry styles has his own nail polish line you know he wears dresses and photo shoots he kisses men on red carpets which he did with nick kroll at the don't worry darling carpet which was so weird by the way because he was there with his girlfriend and nick kroll seemed taken by surprise the whole thing was a bit fucking weird but yeah like he you know very much plays into like a lot of queer aesthetics but he also does so in a way that like a straight guy could too it reminds me of those memes about like straight white boys will put on nail polish and call themselves a gay ally. Like I've seen like jokes about like, you know, like that type of Yeah, it's like I'm queer, but just in an artsy way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I remember like somebody telling me like that it's, yeah, a lot of artsy white boys that like kind of like perform queerness without actually being queer. Well, you get the best of both worlds, right? Yeah. You get like the social clout of queerness and like the gender. You can fall back on your straightness as well though. Yeah, because that's how you avoid homophobia. You're like, no, 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 I'm not actually queer. I just like- Well, if anything, it's like cooler or braver because it's like you're so comfortable in your masculinity and straightness that you feel fine to express it in non-normative ways. Yeah, like it's, I think there is something to say about like, especially the current generation and like the clout that can sometimes come with expressing things in non-normative ways. It's why like so many- People also like race fish and culturally appropriate. I think they're all really similar examples of like not wanting to be the norm, quote unquote, and like wanting the clout of the oppressed group in a way and like performing it. Um, And again, it's one of those things where it's complicated because I can't say that he is performing it because maybe he is actually queer, but it's got, he has allegations against him of performing queerness and profiting off it with his little nail polish brand and whatnot without ever actually doing anything meaningful for gay people, without ever actually being one of them and giving that confidence, you know? 
and I mean, queer baiting just as an idea, which I haven't really encountered until like before discussions of Harry Styles. Yeah, queer baiting in this context is really interesting to yeah. me because up until now, my understanding of queer baiting was more like in the TV show sense. Right. So, um, an example of very iconic queer baiting is like Sherlock Holmes and like Watson, right. where it's like they're often given like weird homoerotic subtext, but they're never actually put into a relationship and they never will be. But showrunners keep you watching by the promise that maybe you'll yeah, get something and supernatural does the possibility it. of it yeah it's really common where they never actually give you queer representation but they give you enough tension between two same-sex characters that would otherwise be in a relationship that you keep watching and it was a real thing in like the early 2000s like with supernatural and doctor who and sherlock and like a lot of fandom stuff it was it was a real conversation in those like tumblr spaces back then and it is a real thing like yeah. it's very very fucking common and if you look back at 2000, 2010 media, like, you'll see it everywhere. But it does become complicated and when it's potentially problematic yeah, when you're talking about a real person. Exactly. Which is why I'm, like, not quite sold on, like, accusing Harry Styles of... I don't think queer baiting is necessarily the correct word for what he's doing. Sure. Because then we're just uh, reiterating the pitfalls of identity politics, saying that you need to open yourself up. You always need to explain yourself to then be allowed to participate in a certain conversation. Um, whereas I think we should be completely fine with not having to articulate every facet of your being to other people. In order uh, to talk about to certain have, ideas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I completely agree with you, which is why I'm like not totally sold on the queer baiting. But, but that messy. being said- yeah, It's it, messy. It's, it's, yeah, it it's feels, just messy. It's, it's, yes. It's messy and it's like weird because I also just think like- I totally get his refusal to label himself, but I'm also like, honestly, if I was that famous and like everybody just thinks that I'm like hurting the gay community, I would just be like, yeah, like. But then it's this like commodification of this queerness. Yeah, it just, just makes it so kind of. It's complicated strange. because he definitely does profit off queer aesthetics. Like that yeah. is, I think, um, undebatable. Now the question is whether he has a right to. That's I think that's the question. But it's like how the. F- Really, we shouldn't even be having this discussion, right? This is like a non-ideal discussion because it's like nobody should be profiting off any like identities and it shouldn't even be a fucking issue. But like it is, I guess it is. And I can understand why it is. And so this brings me to Harry's Rolling Stone interview in August where he was actually like directly asked about the queer baiting allegations uh, where they were like, you know, people think you're queer baiting. Like, what do you say about that? Because he's never openly been in a gay relationship or anything. He's only ever dated women as far as we know. And he said, quote, Sometimes people say, you've only publicly been with women. And I don't think I've publicly been with anyone. If someone takes a picture of you with someone, it doesn't mean you're choosing to have a public relationship or something. End quote. Do you see what I mean where he never actually answers any questions? Mm. He's asked, are you queer baiting? And he says, I've never dated anyone publicly. He's so slippery. That's not like what they want to know. And also, I also just think this quote is kind of bullshit as well because I've never publicly been with anyone. Yes, you have. Your relationship with Olivia Wilde. You guys are literally holding hands at events, cuddling. Everyone knows you're in a relationship. She's like openly talked about your relationship. You are publicly in a relationship with her. Like... It's actually just disingenuous and I think a little bit insulting to like your fans and your audience to be like, no, I've never publicly been with anyone. didn't make a press release or anything. Yeah, he's just like saying, you guys have perceived a relationship that I've never confirmed. It's essentially what he's saying. It's like, I don't confirm anything, so I should have to confirm this. And it's like, but like, you don't have to say, I am dating this person to be publicly dating somebody. And it's just like, it's just a weird quote it doesn't answer the question and it all it does is actually annoy me to be honest and i say this as somebody who has like generally liked harry quite a lot up until like now 
So this quote like rubbed me the wrong way. And my entertainment editor, Maddie, who was also gay, wrote an article about this. I think the headline was, as both a gay man and a Harry Styles fan, I don't know how to feel about his comments on queer baiting. And I think he had a really good point that he made where he kind of, honestly, the whole article is very balanced and it like is a back and forth on like a, hmm, on the one hand, you know, he's profiting on the other hand, like he doesn't always anything. And we want to be progressive and not force people to have labels, but also he's a celebrity. And like, he has, I guess, maybe some responsibilities for his fans, but does he? I don't know. Like, it's very like, who knows, which I think is the point. But like, yeah, Maddie's kind of argument was the same thing that we were saying earlier, where it's like, you can't tell folks you're sexually fluid, but then you don't want to label yourself, but also you're only publicly dating women, but also you're not publicly dating anyone. And that's kind of the issue. This is a quote of Maddie, quote, Harry is part of a generation of men who profit off queer culture by using parts of the identity without actually identifying as queer publicly, end quote. And I do think it's a generational thing as well, because it's a little bit less radical now to identify as queer because it's a more accepted sexuality. Does it still come with a lot of trauma? Yes. Do you experience a lot of homophobia? Yes. But it doesn't make headlines quite the way that it used to. And so there's like, I think, an interesting conversation around the fact that you're part of a generation of men that doesn't have to come out. You don't have to come out and that's great. But like fans are going to question your ability to, for example, play a queer role when you don't identify as queer, especially in a time of like identity politics and the, and the push for diversity in casting. It's like if you're just another straight white man taking a role that could have been played by an out gay man, then like that's going to cause dramas. And speaking of his role in My Policeman, like this is the quote that really ended it for me <laughs> with Harry Styles. I had a really good conversation with my coworker Michael, who is also an out gay man, about this. So in that same Rolling Stone interview, Harry also talked about playing a gay cop in My Policeman, and he made some comments about gay love and gay sex that kind of didn't really go well uh, in the gay community, and I've heard a lot of criticism and read a lot of criticism from gay men about these quotes. So he said, quote, "'It's not like this is a gay story about these guys being gay.'" It's about love and about wasted time to me, end quote. So Harry like wanted to stress that it's a very human story, quote unquote, like very human story. It's not just a gay story. It's a human story. He seemed to want to reinforce that like this is not just another gay movie. This is about love, like all love, all love is love. And there's a really good Guardian column that I'll link in our sources, which rips into that a little bit in a way that I think is like very fair. But before I get to that, I just want to read a couple more quotes from the interview. So this is kind of the key quote that like really just killed it for me with Harry, where I was like, okay, like you actually have some problematic opinions that you need to work through. And I do not trust your conceptions of queer relationships. So he said, quote, so much of gay sex in film is two guys going at it. And it kind of removes the tenderness from it. End quote. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So the first thing my coworker Michael said when we read this quote together at work was he was like, what the fuck does Harry know about gay sex? (laughs) was the first (laughs) thing he said, which I thought was very funny. But then he was kind of like, this is a really heteronormative idea to say that gay men going at it is inherently like devoid of tenderness. Yeah. That's that's homophobic. Literally. (laughs) What? 
Like to be like, so much of gay sex is just two men going at it, and we and you know that's not very intimate. That's not very tender. Like we want to show gay sex that it's beautiful and tender, not just two men. Like going straight at sex, it. it needs to be beautiful. Like yeah, well, heterosexual. I, uh, oh yeah, it's okay. I don't think he like necessarily meant that, no, but that not is definitely all, what but it that's sounds what like. It sounds like, and that I think is what this implies. Like the implication of this quote is that two men just fucking is not beautiful, intimate or like tender it needs to be like made that way typical gay sex is not beautiful and tender but we can make it beautiful and tender by like showing it and choreographing it in a very specific way and when i was talking about it with michael like he was really pissed off about that quote because he was like i'm sorry like all gay sex is intimate and beautiful and tender and like sex in general doesn't have to be like this slow really loving caring like sex in order to be seen as like you know caring intimate this like connection with another person like that's he was saying that that's very heteronormative because of the way heteronormative sex can function with like a man fucking a woman because in a lot of heteronormative sex especially in media it's typically something that is done to someone like man does sex to woman woman receives sex from man like that is how a lot of heteronormative ideas of sex function and then that's where these intimacy and tenderness discourses come from because it's like man is doing sex to woman that's fucking. And then making love is men and women doing it together. Mm. <laughs> you know, like this. that's kind of, I think, where a lot of these discourses root from is the way, pun not intended, <laughs> is the way that like men and women in heteronormative society have sex because of the inherent patriarchal nature of a lot of sex and the violence that a lot of men can enact on women. Like sex can become violent, obviously. And a lot of women are not necessarily active receivers in or just I mean the use of the word receiver is exactly what I'm trying to mention. It's like yeah. women are often perceived as receivers during sex. Yeah. Men are often perceived as doers doing sex. And the way they do sex is what uh you know decides how intimate or not intimate yeah. the sex is. And the way women receive it is how is what makes it intimate or not intimate. Exactly. It's like men get the consent of women and women give their consent to men. Exactly. It's like they they give they're giving their consent to be violated. It's always yeah. That's the language that we use. Those yeah. are the implications of that language. And it's like this is not applicable to gay men having sex because the heteronormative gender rules that we're talking about don't exist in these relationships. At least with two cis gay men having sex. And Michael was saying that like it's actually like kind of homophobic to imply that two gay men just fucking is like inherently not tender. And he argued that it is tender, it can be very beautiful, and it doesn't need to be choreographed in a specific way to be beautiful. And look, in Harry's defense, because I will give him this, he seems to be continuing a dialogue that the director of the film, who is gay, had said previously. Mm. The director said that they were trying to, quote, quite literally show something that was about lovemaking in the broader sense of the word, something that was choreographically interesting and not just some kind of thrusting sense of sex going on, end quote. The director is gay and this is what he has said about sex. And that's fine because I would still disagree that a thrusting sense of sex is not inherently like devoid of intimacy or tenderness. Like I would disagree on that. But like, you know, he can have that take. But I think Harry, like it's possible that he just worded himself really badly. And in trying to continue what the director was saying about like choreographed love making, quote unquote, not fucking, like they wanted to differentiate between the yeah. two. Yeah, I, and I that would make sense. And I would say that a lot of sex in films are just poorly 
filmed and poorly uh, yeah, choreographed. Well, I mean, but it's not intimacy, gay sex. That's yeah. not the. It's just sex yes. isn't communicated well in films, and very rarely do you see something that actually feels intimate. But it's not that gay sex is poorly filmed. I think that there's definitely a chance that Harry was trying to say that. Yes. And like, if I was feeling kinder in the moment, I would definitely give him that benefit of the doubt, but I'm actually not going to because... <laughs> okay, right, right. <laughs> well, like, I mean, you can say that. And I think that like, you could believe that. This is really up to interpretation on our end because we don't have a clarification that is like, you know, confirmed. But my take on this is that like, Harry is playing a gay man in this movie like he is acting as the lead in this movie where he plays a gay man and he may or may not be queer himself i expect more from him i don't think it's wrong to expect more from him with quotes like this like it's possible that he's expressed himself badly but he's also been in the media for like 15 years literally playing playing a role where he's a gay man he's gonna need to articulate these things so part of me is like do i give you that benefit of the doubt like is that just like me trying to be a fan and like trying to defend you because if i took what you said at face value like this is kind of a fucked up thing to say maybe this is why he doesn't talk to the media much i honestly think it is i don't think harry is a very good speaker and i will get to that in a second because i got more on him being a bad speaker but yeah like it's a problematic quote it implies heteronormative ideas of sex of gay sex specifically and it's also just untrue so the guardian column that i mentioned earlier was really great the title of it is harry styles comments on gay sex and sexuality are frustratingly coy and it's written by someone called guy lodge so that author argues that it's a fundamentally untrue thing to say that most gay sex on TV is just two guys going at it because actually gay sex has been forcefully restrained in movies for quite a long time. So the author then uses examples like popular gay films like Brokeback Mountain, Call Me By Your Name, Moonlight, like, you know, kind of in the pop culture zeitgeist, popular films about gay couples that are, like, not super horny and, like, in the way that this is implied. Like, they're not just thrusting sex scenes. All of these movies have tender and loving gay sex, most of which is off screen. And so that author's argument was, like, what is Harry even talking about? Because if you look at a lot of gay movies, that is not how they express gay sex. A lot of gay movies have to rely on off-screen tender depictions of sex in order to even get to where they are because gay sex is still so stigmatized and just like rough sex between two two gay men like doesn't really make it to the screen anyway so it's actually just wrong like what is he talking about um it's a really good article i'll link it in the sources but yeah again this is like why i'm like skeptical of this quote because it's like he says so much of gay sex in film is two guys going at it but like give me an example of like fucking any kind of popular movie that has like intense gay sex in it in the first place even gay movies are obviously limited by the heteronormative society that we live in and they have to be creative and like careful in the way that they film sex scenes because they have to fight this very homophobic stigma of gay love not being as meaningful as straight love or as intimate or as tender as straight love that men just want to fuck each other like it's not as meaningful it's just horny it's just sex it's not love yeah that's actually so true that that, i mean that's a really good uh quote because it's always queer cinema that shows sex as being you know, multiple and complicated and there's so many different ways to have sex, whereas always, you know, heterosexual sex on film, which is shown to be always the same, always formulaic. Uh, there's only one way to have sex, essentially. So yeah, Man it's just does not true. Sex to I, don't, woman. I don't know. Yeah, that just complicates Harry's quotes even further. Yeah, because it's like there isn't even an example of that and I think it does a disservice to like queer cinema to make that claim. Like it's in a way insulting. Like it's insulting to be like, oh yeah, so much of gay sex in films is just this. Because it's like you have just made a blanket statement about queer cinema, which is in my opinion like the most radical cinema and that has really interesting, really progressive and really beautiful 
depictions of sex in a way that heteronormative cinema honestly could never. So like, yeah, it's a frustrating quote. I think that article is really great and everybody should read it. Um, And it shows that Harry, like, honestly, just doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And Harry not knowing what the fuck he's talking about when he's talking about gay cinema as somebody who plays a gay cop in a movie about gayness as a man who may or may not be gay is, like, weird and, like, complicated and worth talking about and maybe worth, like, investigating if we're going to talk about things like queer baiting and the idea of, like, Harry being – I mean, honestly, just him having this role. I saw other commentary, just, like, kind of Twitter commentary, so, you know, take it as you will. But I saw commentary where people were like, if Harry isn't gay, just, like, he may not be, and if he isn't, like – why does he have this role? Harry is not an actor. <laughs> like, prior to this movie and Don't Worry Darling, and he's a lead in, like, both. Like, he was in fucking Dunkirk where he, like, didn't even really talk in it. Like, uh, did he have any speaking lines? Uh, I think so. Very few. I rem- remember him being good in Dunkirk, but I don't remember the extent of his role. Yeah, like, I'm not saying he's a bad actor, but yeah. I'm just saying he's not an established actor and this is, like, a career change for him. And it's interesting that he's landed two lead roles in, like, the same two months of, like, these exciting movies that people are keen for as somebody that, like, you know, is not that established and, like, experienced, kind of has no formal training or, like, educational background in acting. And I don't think you need those things to be an actor, but I think there is something to be said about Harry and how easy it has been for him to break into acting as, like, a famous straight or potentially straight white cis man, right? And I can understand the frustration if he isn't queer to then say all these things in this role that other queer men would fucking kill for, right? And there's already so much conversation in Hollywood about like straight men playing queer roles and they could just hire queer men. Like there's a lot of discourse around that. And it's very interesting with Harry because we don't know, but we just don't know. So with all this going on, there's a lot of issues around the way Harry expresses himself and the fact that I actually don't think he's ever said anything particularly like interesting, like ever. Rip. <laughs> I, rip. I know that's kind of me, but interesting to me, I should say. I'm sure he's had like really fun interviews and like said nice things about his life and stuff. But like, you know, from a political perspective or from like a critical perspective, like a lot of his words either seem empty or like just really lacking in nuance Mm. so it's just yeah it's kind of it's something to consider and then now we're in september 2022 this week uh in the first week of september harry styles attended venice film festival for the premiere of don't worry darling a film he has just started alongside florence Pugh, which is directed by olivia wilde his current girlfriend they were not like as in they weren't together before the film I should make that clear because I feel like that, I didn't know that. makes it a lot spicier. <laughs> right. This was actually an on-set romance. Oh. So okay. Because I assumed that he got the role through Wild. No. But so, I did not know that. I mean, look, it's a little messy. Okay. So, basically- um, Give me the tea because I, I got no clue what's going on. <laughs> okay. I mean, look, this don't worry. There's so, I'm not going to go into all the tea because not all of it is actually relevant to Harry Styles. And I could literally do a whole podcast episode investigating Don't Worry Darling and all the fucking tea around this goddamn movie. But anyway, it's directed by Olivia Wilde, who directed Booksmart, which yes. we actually really liked. That Enjoyed was her that. debut movie. Uh-huh. So she's directing Don't Worry, Darling. It stars Florence Pugh and Harry Styles. It's like a neo-50s vibe. Have you seen the trailer? Do you know what it's about I have all? seen the trailer, but I don't know what it's about. So Florence Pugh and Harry Styles are like married. I'm not actually sure what the proper time set is meant to be because it looks like it's in the 50s, but it's like futuristic sci-fi. It's like a psychological Maybe thriller. Maybe that's the twist. Who knows? Well, it's a psychological thriller and basically Florence Pugh, mm. like, has her husband Harry Styles, they're very in love. There's just teamy sex scenes between them. He, like, gets a new job or whatever and, his, like, she doesn't know what he does at work. So him and all the other husbands, like, go to work and then her and all the wives 
are kind of like just supposed to be happy, kind of like in a Stepford Wives vibe a little bit. Right. And then she starts to be suspicious of what he's actually up to and start to ask questions in a way that none of the other women are doing. And then that is kind of where the thriller starts. She starts to find out what the fuck is going on. It's very like spooky. It's supposed to be like, it's got very mixed reviews. People loved Florence Pugh's performance and she has been like really hailed for it, but people really didn't like Olivia Wilde's direction. So it's kind of spicy. Yeah, it's one of the worst reviewed films out of Venice this year. Yeah. But the bad reviews are specifically targeting Olivia Wilde's direction yeah. of the film, which is like big rip Muddled for her. And empty. Rip. Yeah, rip. Disappointing because I was actually quite keen for it. And we'll be going to like the Australian premiere for it in Sydney in a couple of weeks. So that's, yeah. Interesting. We'll see how that goes. But anyway, so some basic tea, just because I also know our listeners are invested, so I'll give a little bit more tea than I need to. <laughs> um, so initially, it was actually not supposed to be Florence Pugh in this role. It was supposed to be Dakota Johnson who dropped out, and then Florence Pugh was brought in. And it was actually supposed to be Shia LaBeouf that was in Harry's role. And then he was, look, either fired or quit. This is another messy thing. Olivia Wilde did an interview and she said that he was really combative on set and like quite mean to to Florence Pugh and she fired him. But then Shia LaBeouf like literally emailed Variety who did that um, interview and was like, that's a lie. She didn't fire me. I quit. Here's a bunch of text messages and a video oh my of God. her literally begging me to stay on set, um, which is spicy as fuck. And then like, that was the tea for a few days. And then Olivia Wilde just very recently was like, oh, I just let him think that like he was leaving at his own accord because he was so scary and we like wanted to n- avoid drama. So we just kind of let him think that he was quitting, but actually I was firing him, which like sounds wild okay. to me. Like I'm like, hmm, do I believe that Shia LaBeouf was combative on set? Absolutely. Oh, Look at yeah. all the domestic violence allegations against him. Like I would not be surprised if that was true. Uh-huh. But also, like, there is literally a video of Olivia Wilde, like, begging him to come back. And it's pretty cringe. You can Google it and watch it. Anyway, so Shia LaBeouf is gone. Harry Styles is cast. Olivia Wilde is separating from her husband, Jason Sudeikis. Sudeikis? I never know how to say his name. Uh, um, Whatever. Jason. We're calling him Jason. (laughs) Honestly, it's reverse racism. and I don't give a fuck. I refuse (laughs) to learn the last names of these random white actors. Sure. Uh, that is my own form of rebellion. So Jason, <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> um, so like she was married to Jason, who was friends with Zach Braff, who is Florence, who was Florence Pugh's partner for like a long time. Zach Braff is that guy from um, Scrubs. Oh yes, I yes. think that's yeah. Yes, he was the main him. guy. Anyway, he was dating Florence Pugh, and they have a massive age gap. And she, like, their relationship got a lot of hate, and they broke up recently. But she knows Jason Olivia Wilde's now ex husband through that. Anyway, then Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles strike up an onset romance. And this is according to, you know, anonymous sources who take with a grain of salt. But apparently they like constantly like disappear from set for the little like rendezvous. And, like, naughty. Naughty. And like <laughs> Florence Pugh is like pissed off because she's like, I'm trying to make a fucking movie here. She's also in Dune as well. So she's like kind of doing a lot of things at once. She's like, I just want to get this done. I mean, allegedly, this is what happened. And she's mad at Olivia Wilde for fucking off with Harry Styles, partially because, obviously, it's unprofessional. And the other bit people think is, like, because she's friends with Olivia Wilde's ex. And this is where it gets even messier. The timeline is a bit weird. So we don't quite know if she was fully divorced (laughs) before she started dating Harry Styles. No wonder the movie's bad. Like, there's too (laughs) much shit going on. It's so messy. And this is, like, I am literally giving you the TLDR. Like, there is... 
so oh, much man. more. I'm not even going to bother getting into the specifics between Florence Pugh and Olivia Wilde because it's just a lot. Okay. But this is this is the parts where Harry Styles is relevant, oh, obviously. My. And then, yeah, so the movie is filming. Harry Styles is obviously silent about this whole thing. And he's been pretty silent about his relationship with Olivia Wilde, but she's not silent about dating him. She's also significantly older than him, but I also think most of his girlfriends have been quite a bit older than him. I think he's got a thing for MILFs. The anti-DiCaprio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's so a Morty. Okay, that's no, so, Di- so DiCaprio can like break up with them and then Harry can start dating them. There you go. They swap. But anyway, so yeah, there's like this whole tea. It's causing dramas on set. So there's already quite a lot of drama and it's kind of, I think, affecting, I think it was affecting some fans' perspectives as well because people fucking love Florence Pugh. Like people, adore- I don't actually know that much about her, but people love her. I know her from like Little Women. And people love Harry Styles and Florence Pugh as an on-screen couple, I believe. Yeah, because they're both iconic. Yes. And people are obsessed with both of them, so they love them together. There are rumours that, like, maybe there was beef between Florence and Olivia Wilde because of the sex scenes, but I don't think that's true. Because, like, this is literally Olivia Wilde's movie. Like, she is directing it. I don't think she gives a fuck about the sex scenes that she is, like, the one that put them in the movie. Like, yeah, I think people need to chill with that. That just sounds like a little bit of misogynistic thinking of like oh of course they're fighting over a man i don't think they're fighting over harry styles i think they're just fighting because olivia wilde appears to be being very like unprofessional yeah um and so like the fucking premiere happens which is just a disaster from the get-go like florence Pugh just doesn't come to the beginning of the promotion she just doesn't show up in the beginning which we kind of knew she wasn't going to do she has distanced herself from all the promotional material of the movie she's not doing any of the press rounds she's not doing any interviews That's so weird which is wild because yeah. she's the lead it's her movie <laughs> like she is the lead of this movie so her not being involved in any of that is like something has obviously gone down and then on the red carpet none of them arrived together so between harry styles florence Pugh, and olivia wilde none of those three took any photos with each other on the red carpet. So Harry and Olivia did not stand next to each other in any photos. Olivia and Florence did not stand next to each other in any photos. And Florence and Harry did not stand next to each other in any photos, which is bizarre because they're the two leads and the director and two of them are dating. Yeah. Like, why the fuck are they not? This It's so this weird. It's surreal. It's, and it's like, it's one of those things where it sounds exaggerated, but you can literally watch the press. There's like a video of like, one of Olivia Wilde's staff trying to grab Harry by the hand and move him next to Olivia and he like shakes her off and walks away. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> something is happening. This is so strange. It's super weird. I think his diehard fans will always defend him, but people who are like me, who are like, who like Harry, but like, you know, I'm open to criticism of Harry. I kind of like, hmm, it's very suspicious to me that a lot of this discourse is only about Florence and Olivia Wilde when like Harry is, equally as guilty as Olivia Wilde if they're going on rendezvous together. I know he didn't actually do anything, but that, like, affects my opinion of him a little bit. And I, this is what I mean with, like, it's very interesting the way the public perception of Harry is changing over time because, like, we're starting to question him and we're like, you know what? I know you're always silent, but your silence is deafening right now. Right, yes. <laughs> it's just a bit fucking weird. It seems like he's always been treated very, very well by the media mm-hmm. and refuses to upend that. Yeah. Or, or complicate that yeah. in any way. Yeah. And now and that's becoming more and more obvious. It's just apparent, right? And again, yeah. it's like he doesn't have to do anything. It's just noticeable. It's just noticeable. And then with the like red carpet stuff, it was just weird because it's like, okay, I get, you know, I get Olivia Wilde and Florence Pugh having beef, but like, why is Harry not being tight with Florence Pugh? Like, what happened between them? Is there also beef there? And then obviously, most people are like, well, we know Florence Pugh is unproblematic queen. So if she is beef, are you telling me Harry is not involved here? I don't believe it for one second. Mm. That's his girlfriend. Like Olivia Wilde is his girlfriend. Something is going on. 
he's involved in some capacity and like nobody wants to talk about it because nobody ever wants to treat Harry Styles like he's capable of like being problematic or bitchy or being involved in drama but he like clearly is but that's not even the part that I think makes him look bad at the Venice Film okay, Festival that yeah. was just me wanting to talk about it because I find that part hilarious so there's two big dramas involving Harry Styles from the film festival the first one is Spitgate <laughs> <laughs> Did Harry Styles spit on Chris Pine is a massive question. I know you know of this because I, I this showed one. you the video. Yes, we inspected and it. There is nothing on God's green earth that could convince me that he didn't spit on Chris Pine. <laughs> like, I am well obsessed with this fucking conspiracy. If anyone disagrees with me, I don't care. Don't tell me. I don't want to hear it. He spat something on Chris. I don't know if it was spit. I don't know if he spat out a fruit seed, as some people like suggest. Some gum. Some gum. No, we would have seen the gum frame by frame. I have watched this video, both slow motion and both frame by frame, and you can't actually see anything come out of Harry's mouth, but also it's not close enough. Look, all I know is Chris reacted to something. <laughs> Harry's mouth pursed, and then Chris reacted to something. I like I'm the convinced. interpretation that Chris just thought he lost his sunglasses or <laughs> something and then just found his sunglasses. And it's like, oh, yeah, there, there they are. Look, possibly. Is that the more boring answer that I refuse yeah, to I like, like think about? One, because I'm having fun, having this, you know, very removed perception of what happened. I mm. choose to believe that Harry spit on Chris Pine. But it's so interesting because after Spitgate, people turned on Harry so fast. And even I was shocked because, like, I, you know, I don't dislike Harry, but I was very, it was very easy for me to be like, yeah, he probably spat on Chris Pine. But like a lot of Harry's fans or like people who like, you know, have loved Harry until this moment were like, what the fuck, Harry? Like, and like not cancelled him, but like really, you know what the word is? They just, it just shifted. It just just shift. It just warped because people were like, hmm, this isn't. The straw that broke the camel's back. Literally, people were like, this isn't consistent with my perception of Harry Styles because. Even if, like, it was an inside joke between Harry and Chris where, like, they spit on each other or something. Maybe one of them spat a seed (laughs) on the other one on set and now it's, like, a meme. Like, whatever. You know, people have their own inside jokes. But I saw, like, a few comments, which surprised me, especially because some of them were from people that I know like Harry Styles, where they were just, like, I mean, even if it's a joke, that's just kind of gross. Like, can you not spit on somebody at the fucking Venice? Like, can you just behave yourself? <laughs> like, people I was just- going to say, at the Venice Film Festival, typically a very prestigious yeah. event. You, these celebrities, man, you can't you can't <laughs> take them anywhere. Like, they just bring their shit show. Because they live on the, the world stage. They live in public. So this is normal for them to just bring all their dirty laundry. But we also, we crave it as well. That, I mean, it's, yeah, a, it's I was a two-edged say, sword. I, this has been the only thing that has sustained me all fucking week. Like, I have been living and breathing and eating. Don't worry, darling. That's true. That's true. And it is like keeping my soul nourished. So I know we shouldn't complain. I can't pretend like I'm above it, of course. (laughs) But you just these celebrities, you can't. Well, yeah, it's one of those things where like it just kind of made him look like a petulant child a little bit. Right. Sure. And I think it like just gave people the ick. Like this is this is the ick in action, right? But the ick doesn't end there. This is the final boss battle of the ick, right? It's like then. During the same event, the Venice Film Festival, there was like the press conference with the Don't Worry Darling cast and Harry was asked what he liked most about the movie. His answer is it's short and it's ridiculous. I'm actually going to play it for you because I don't think I can like, I don't think I can give it justice reading it. So I'm just going to play it. Okay. You know, my favorite thing about the movie is like, it feels like a, like a movie. It feels like a real, like, you know, go to the theater 
film, movie, that, you know, you, you kind of, the reason why you go to watch something on the big screen, I, I think. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Oh my God. What an insult. Your girlfriend directed that movie. <laughs> like, I, what? Has he seen a movie before? It's it's so funny. It's so funny. Like this is what gave me. This was the final ick for me. Oh I was like, God. I can never look at you the same, Harry. Like it's just such a ridiculous it's just so answer. Ar- inarticulate. That, yes, that's the issue. That's the issue. Uh. And this is what I mean. Where like this is why I was going back with all his other quotes because he actually just like does struggle to articulate a lot of his thoughts on things. And that's not necessarily like a reflection in his character. But it's like you are starring in this movie. It's your first big role. You are surrounded by seats. Because you're sitting next to Chris Pine, who like studied film and is like a very accomplished actor. And you're going to talk like this? Like it's just frustrating. It's like, did you do no prep at all? Yeah, for you this? just fell into this major role. Yeah, right. And that's like, what it feels like. That's what it feels like. And like, I'm not necessarily saying that's true, but like, as you know, just a person, as people who just like watch these things and aren't celebrities, it's frustrating because we have certain expectations of them. Right? Like, when I watch this, my expectation, especially I think because I'm a journalist, it annoys me a little bit more. Because, like, imagine being a fucking journalist and trying to get an answer out of Harry Styles and he tells you that. Like, what can I do with this? So, I'm already a little bit, I'm biased because it is frustrating when you interview somebody and they give you nothing. You can't put that in the headline. Like, don't worry, darling. Looks like a movie. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what is he telling you? And I saw, so I actually spent a long time trying to interpret what Harry was saying. Because I was like, you know what? I do feel like I must try and understand him. I'm not going to write it off immediately. Um, And I saw a few of his fans, like the kind of defensive ones, being like, you guys are so unfair. You know, everyone can struggle with articulation at times. He's never really been a good speaker. That's not his strong suit. All all that's sure, true. That's fine. Fine. Um, And they were like, you know, he's just saying it's a theatre experience in the way that a lot of movies aren't anymore because they're made for streaming. I'm like, "Mm, I don't buy that because like actually a lot of movies that stream also hit the cinemas. Look, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of get what he's saying, but also this is Venice Film Festival. Mm-hmm. This is a space for movies, for people in the film industry, critics, journalists who care about movies. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been to film festivals and they're fantastic spaces where you're with kind of like-minded people or at least people that appreciate cinema as an art Yeah, form. like this is not a public press conference. You are talking to like people who care about film. They don't want to go to the press screening and then be like inundated with the actor who is like... The movie you just watched looks like a movie. Like, yeah, and it's 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 it kind ridiculous. of goes back to what I was saying earlier, and what I think has been kind of the ongoing issue since the Billy Porter days is that Harry just appears to be given things. He was given the Vogue shoot, and I don't think he earned it. And Billy Porter certainly doesn't think he earned it or deserved it. He was given this role in Don't Worry, Darling, despite clearly knowing fuck all about the movie or about acting or about film. And then he was given the My Policeman role, despite having like pretty weird ideas of gay sex that don't seem to have any nuance and that seem to actually be quite offensive towards queer cinema. So it's like, who are you and why do you have these roles? Like, why Mm. actually are you this famous? Like, that is, when I watched that, it gave me the ick, but it also, like, actually just made me sit down and think about Harry's place in pop culture. Oh, this is the tool that allows us to retroactively reconsider his whole career. Because then, like, we went back through all those quotes and it just makes me think, why are you as famous as you are? Like, obviously, he's a very talented singer and songwriter, but why are you, like, an actor and why are you in this press conferences when, like, other actors exist who could be doing this. Like, why is it you? Yeah. And it's, like, frustrating. And I think, you know, especially with that final quote, like, people have defended him. Like, maybe he fumbled. 
that's so fair but also like this is your job now I know you're just gonna fuck off back to your stage and play your like songs and stuff but like you have got this role that other people could have done I think there are other conversations around acting and how like people just can move horizontally into acting without actually like working for it. a lot of like pop stars and stuff do that and a lot of actors do that with music too like a lot of actors will release a song like it's yeah. a, you know it's all kind of one industry in that way but yeah like with Harry Styles I feel like given the way that he has risen to fame and how much his fans dedicate him I guess the question is and like what really makes this a huge thing though episode is like why is he famous and can we expect anything of him are we allowed to expect more from Harry Styles, who actually kind of is giving us nothing right now? And that's what I find myself asking when I have these conversations. Like, literally everybody I know has the ick from Harry Styles right now. And it's kind of wild that that's happened because it's a massive fall from grace from him, even though it's not really a fall because he's still he's not cancelled by any means. But I just feel like what goes up must come down and Harry is starting to come down. Like, I feel like... When I say cancellation, obviously I don't actually mean cancelled because I don't believe that cancel culture exists. No, not for people like Harry Styles anyway. But when I say his cancellation is imminent, I just mean that there's like a cultural shift in the way we perceive Harry Styles where he's suddenly being acknowledged as flawed and not this like God that he often is seen as. But like my kind of main questions are like, am I allowed to be frustrated about this? Like, am I allowed to expect more from him? Because like, you know, let's talk about like parasocial relationships. Like, I don't think I necessarily have much of a parasocial relationship with Harry Styles because I don't actually care that much about him as a person. I certainly don't feel like I know him. But I'm like, hmm, is it a little bit of a parasocial relationship just to expect something of him, just to have expectations of him? And I feel like my take, I think if we were talking objectively, no, like you can't expect anything of anyone and that's generally my answer. But the more I read about Harry Styles and the more I think about what is given to him, I'm just like, you got to give us something back, fam. <laughs> like, give me anything, anything. It's frustrating. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think it interestingly relates back to our previous episodes on like celebrity gossip and parasocial relationships because, yes, celebrities are people, but also as we've discussed, they do also occupy this unique place in the cultural imagination they are almost like tools that we use to make sense of our own positions on things and sometimes when they just give you nothing back it's like what are they doing like why are they a celebrity a celebrity why do we celebrate them because that's Mm -hmm. what a celebrity is they're people that supposedly we celebrate and when they not just don't stand for anything but when they seemingly refuse to that's the thing it's not just he's not just being but he seems to oppose any sense of obligation Mm. for things that he also profits off of it's just a really complicated space to be in and i guess if we just stop celebrating him then he'll cease to be a celebrity yeah exactly like i mean we could all just collectively decide that harry is kind of over his reign is over and like that would end it you know But yeah, I just, I think about it a lot because my stance on celebrities who do then speak out on things I don't fucking understand, which happens way more often than it should, I'm always just like, can we stop asking so much of celebrities? I say this all the time. Like, we need to stop asking so much of celebrities. Maybe I don't need to hear what that celebrity thinks on Palestine and Israel. (laughs) You know, like, maybe that's not the area of expertise. Maybe they shouldn't talk about things I don't understand because that's how we get, like, stupid opinions than, like, put out into the world and then their fans accept those opinions because they deify the celebrity and then we have problematic ideas floating around. You know, like sometimes you'll hear a celebrity comment on a political issue and you're like, why? Just shut the fuck up, please, for the love of God. 
And then I'm like finding myself kind of, you know, at an impasse here because that is generally my belief. But then with Harry, like, yeah, I really want you to comment on certain queer politics. I actually want that from you. I'm actually waiting for you to say something and I'm disappointed every time you don't. But the difference is, I guess, is that he is operating in that space. It's technically something he should know something about. You know, he's not being asked about an irrelevant thing. Like queerness is very, very specific to his niche in celebrity stardom. And he has built his entire brand on it. Mm, I was going to say, I guess if a musician created a a sprawling concept album about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, and then they refused to comment on Palestine, that would be kind of strange. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Where That's exactly the thing. I think the issue is it's part of Harry's brand. It is like very specifically his image. And like, let's not pretend that any of his image is accidentally curated. Like he has a fucking Yeah, it's not merely been imposed upon him, maybe at first, but it's snowballed into something, you know, into an empire. Yeah, exactly. And Harry is like really the face of soft boy male queerness right now, which is like a really in aesthetic. And like Harry Styles' his look is like aspirational. And honestly, Harry Styles' look is being referred to as, you know, Harry Styles' look when it's actually not his look. It predates him. It is like a lot of his aesthetics are actually taken from black queerness very specifically as well. A lot of his influences are black in general, which he doesn't talk about as much as he should. And this is what I mean, where, like, I'm at a point now where I'm like, wow, I actually, like, was, I got fooled. I got bamboozled by Harry Styles. I really bought into the Harry Styles love, like, and have for many years. And I I feel like I'm only just, like, breaking free from the shackles of Harry Styles, where I'm like, oh, my God, you are just another white man. Shocking. Cool. Well, thanks for listening to our first episode back after four months. Uh, I think now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is no one this week. No (laughs) one. Because we're not going to do the Patreon this week. I think we're still figuring out exactly where we want to take it. We want to rework it a bit and think about it a bit more. This is a new, here's the thing though, revamped, reconsidered, rethought. Normally at this point, I would talk about our Patreon, but I'm not going to. So instead, if you want to hear more from us, please check out our Instagrams. So my Instagram is at Official. We'll put a link down below. Please give me a follow if you like today's episode. And you can always message me there as well if you want to chat. And follow my Instagram at Miscellanea for discussions around film, books and music. Also, if you have, you know, any kind of longer comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can like email us as well at here's the thing podcast at gmail.com. And if you do, please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. Cool. Thanks. Cool. Bye. Bye.